The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming to this program on short notice. It's a great pleasure to have Peter Hetzler um, with us today. You know, he gets to do the stuff that those of us who study China wish we could do, you know, whether it was driving along the Great Wall or living in a village or spending a ton of time in a factory, he got to really spend time in China with the people that, you know, when we sit in New York, we always hope that we could do. And then he's produced, you know, the third of three terrific books. I just spent four days on the beach reading it. And the weather was perfect, but the book was even better. Um, it's really a terrific read. Now, I, since it's just coming out today, correct? Um, let me read a review to you, a very short review, because it tells you in words better than I, what than I can, what a terrific book this is. It says, in his latest feat of penetrating social reportage, New York writer Hessler again proves himself the keenest observer of the new China. He investigates the country's lurch into modernity through three engrossing narratives. In an epic road trip following the Great Wall across northern China, he surveys dilapidated frontier outposts from the imperial past while barely surviving the advent of the nation's uniquely terrifying car culture. For those of us who driven China in the back rows, we know that's the case. He probes for the transformation of village life through the saga of a family of peasants trying to remake themselves as middle-class entrepreneurs. Finally, he exploits China's frantic industrialization, industrialization embodied by the managers and workers at a fly-by-night drop parts factory in a special economic zone. Goes on, but basically it's three stories of what modern China is, and opposed to what, as opposed to having a political philosophy of what's going on, Peter really is an observer of it, and really kind of takes us into exactly what's going on. So let me kick off the program by asking these three stories, kind of what brought you to choosing each of the stories, especially the car story, as, they, as China's car culture becomes more and more important in its development. Uh, yeah, this was this was a, a sort of a long project. I mean, it started in uh, in 2001, basically, and and I guess it started with getting a Chinese driver's license. Um, and you know, maybe I, I can start actually by reading sort of just the introduction, which I think explains how this got kicked off. Um, so I'd like to read uh, the beginning couple pages of the book. Um, there are still empty roads in China, especially on the western steppes, where the highways to the Himalayas carry little traffic other than dust and wind. Even the boom towns of the coast have their share of vacant streets. They lead to half-built factory districts and planned apartment complexes. They wind through terraced fields that are destined to become the suburbs of tomorrow. They connect villages whose residents travel by foot less than a generation ago. It was the thought of all that fleeting open space, the new roads to old places, the landscapes on the verge of change, 
that finally inspired me to get a Chinese driver's license. By the summer of 2001, when I applied to the Beijing Public Safety Traffic Bureau, I lived in China for five years. During that time, I traveled passively by bus and plane, boat and train. I dozed across provinces and slept through towns. But sitting behind the wheel woke me up. That was happening everywhere. In Beijing alone, almost a thousand new drivers registered on average each day, the pioneers of a nationwide auto boom. Most of them came from the growing middle class, for whom a car represented mobility, prosperity, modernity. For me, it meant adventure. The questions of the written driver's exam suggested a world where nothing could be taken for granted. One of the questions said, if you come to a road that has been flooded, you should A, accelerate so the motor doesn't flood, B, stop, examine the water to make sure it's shallow, and drive across slowly, or C, find a pedestrian and make him cross ahead of you. <laughs> Another question said, when approaching a railroad crossing, you should A, accelerate and cross. There's always an answer that's accelerate immediately. <laughs> Sometimes there's two. B, accelerate only if you see a train approaching. <laughs> or C, slow down and make sure it's safe before crossing. So, you know, I, the moment I started to drive in China, I, I began with sort of, it, it, the motivations were basically practical. I wanted to get around, and I, I, I also wanted to find a way to, to have a life kind of outside of Beijing, particularly in the, in the countryside, in the mountains north of Beijing. And I knew the license was a way to do it, but I quickly realized that I was in the middle of this incredible transformation. I guess the year that I got my license, um, China had 33 million, uh, no, I'm sorry, 44 million uh, licensed drivers. Um, and by the end of last year, they had 138 million. So, and basically, that's kind of during the span of the eight years that this book was researched and written, China added 93 million drivers. So all these people learning something new. And, and this is always an interesting issue in any country where people are trying to transform themselves and trying to figure out new skills. And really, in some ways, it's the story of China um, of, of the last 20 years. This is a place that's made this incredible shift in policy, and people have, have been thrown into a new world, and, and they've responded by trying to figure these things out. So it began with that very simple thing of, of trying to get a license. I did a long trip across the north, uh, about 7,000 miles driving through the north, and mostly through small villages. And along the way, I realized that so many of these villages were losing population. And, you know, they're very poignant places because often almost all of the young people of working age have left. Um, so that made me interested in trying to, you know, I thought this is nice to have a, a journey to sort of start a book, but I'd like to have something else that, that sort of focuses in on a place and on people who are, you know, specifically coping with these issues. And, and so I ended up renting a home north of Beijing and getting to know the people in this, in this small village and writing about how they dealt with these changes. And, and in their case, the automobile had somewhat of an unexpected impact because they originally lived at the end of a dirt road and was a very quiet village. It didn't have much contact with Beijing. Um, but then they paved the road, and they improved the other roads to, the, to this region, and people from the city started coming out. And so the villagers you know, began to do business with city people. And, and in so many ways, the place changed once that road was finished. And after doing that section, I, I realized, or after getting into that section, I realized there's one part of the story that I'm not, I haven't seen yet, which is the factory towns and, and, and the real urban life. And so for the third part of this book, I decided to find a, a, a new town that was developing rapidly 
in the southeast. And I basically just chose a highway that was being built, an expressway, because China's, you know, is, is uh, constructing so many high-speed expressways. And uh, I found a town along the expressway and went there repeatedly for more than two years. Um, so that was basically kind of the structure for the book, but it's never, you know, it, it wasn't a vision I had at the beginning. I feel like as a writer, as a researcher, you're often kind of feeling your way through, and, and you start to get into a subject, and then you realize what else you need to do, and, and that's really the way this developed. And I guess it was seven, seven, eight years um, of research, and then a couple of years of writing. You know, the car is kind of the, the repeat theme of all three of the stories and you know the automobile industry has been one of the pillar industries of China and we've seen you know, the numbers that you just gave us have been truly extraordinary what I always as I sit in traffic jams throughout China now they used to only be in Beijing and Shanghai and now they're in, in second tier cities How, where does it end in other words you cannot have Chinese driving cars in the numbers that Americans mm -hmm. drive cars or the, the country will be in permanent gridlock. So as somebody who's kind of lived there and watched this, what do you think happens? Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it's a good question and I, you know, I don't know if anybody has the answer but it, I mean, living in Beijing makes you very aware of this. I mean, Beijing, Beijing now has four million motor vehicles, you know, in the last the last million were added in two and a half years, in a span of two and a half years, basically. And they'll add another million by the end of next year. So, you know, it is really an enormous issue. And it is true that, you know, you just don't see how it can fit the same way it does in America. But the aspiration is really the same. This has become, you know, something that a lot of Chinese, a surprising number of Chinese aspire to. I mean, when I was, when I was in Fuling as a, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I never would have imagined in those years that a lot, you know, that, that many Chinese would be able to drive. It was considered a very special skill, even then. It was in '96 when I was first there. And I mean, it was always, you know, you'd go to bankers. I remember the the, the driver, who, the person who drove us around, sort of had a, he would kind of have a, you know, a place of honor. And then the driver would always be at the table with the important people from the college if they're having a banquet, you know, because he, it was a, a very important skill. And they were. They were impressed that Adam and I, the two volunteers, they both knew how to drive, and they would often, you know, ask us to show. And the Peace Corps had a circle where if you drive any vehicle, you get kicked out immediately. <laughs> and this would always happen at the end of banquets. They'd be like, now it is, you know, if you've been drinking shots of Baijiu for hours, like, now we want to see you drive. And <laughs> 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 to try to talk them, which actually was a big issue when I drove across the north, was always trying to trying to fend off the, the, the peer pressure to drink and drive, which can be quite intense in, in northern China. Um, but the amazing thing is, is I go, you know, I talk to people in fooling, and I mean, like, the guys at the noodle restaurant who seem to have a pretty simple life when I was there, they have a car now. I have a number of former students, you know, they're teaching, they're not doing business, but they have, some of them have cars now because they've gotten so much cheaper and, and it's becoming common. So I, I'm not really... It is hard to see where it goes. It's easy to understand the aspiration, though, um, and it's easy to see how much people enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's one thing. I, it, it can be sort of hell to drive in China and when we looked at it and from the outside, but one thing you realize when you do it is that people are having a great time. You know, they're, they're, also, you know, they're having lots of accidents and so on, but people are really good-natured about it. <laughs> and if you've ever gotten in a, you know, in a fender bender, I mean, it's not a burden. That's not that unpleasant. You get out and you negotiate and usually... 
about $12 changes hands or something, and that's the end of it. Um, so people are happy to have this opportunity, uh, and that's understandable. Um, as for where it goes, I, you know, it's kind of the same question you have in America. I mean, you have a place where people want to improve their living standards, want to accumulate things, um, but you have, you know, eventually run into environmental pressures. So I, I think they're going to have the same issue there more, much more intensely, but I, I don't know how they're going to control it because the market also matters to them. They want to keep selling these cars in Beijing, the 4 million vehicles in Beijing. Those are being made in China. So, you know, the government is happy to have them made and bought. It's probably the area where economic policy and environmental issues collide most in the most difficult way. You know, in the book, since it comes out today, most people, most people haven't read it, but in it, you know, Peter camps along the, the Great Wall over thousands and thousands of miles. So literally at night, pulls off the road, pitches the tent, and sleeps there. Which is, again, something those of us who've worked in China for all these years just go, wow, that is amazing. Were you not fearful? I mean, wasn't it, isn't it a little scary to kind of just go and pull your, your, your rented car off the side of the road and, and camp out? Yeah, no, I, I sort of had done that. I mean, I did a lot of traveling when I was in, I was in graduate school in England for a couple of years and did a lot of traveling those years. And, you know, would often backpack at a very low level, I guess, in, in Europe. I mean, I can remember, I did a long, I spent a couple months in Switzerland, and I would sleep under underpasses sometimes and camp in people's yards and just get up early in the morning and, and get out before they would see you. So I, I, you know, in a way I was sort of prepared for it. But, um, you know, the thing in China is it, it's, I always, I never worried for my safety as far as people with bad intentions. And the amazing thing is that drive across the north, which I did, and, I did it in two, two journeys, each of them a little more than a month, and I basically, there's one incident where a friend and I kind of got scammed by a roadside. Um, to tell that story. It's yeah. A very funny story. Well, this is the only, you know, I only had one incident where, where I, somebody sort of treated me badly, and that was basically a friend and I were driving through Hobay, and on a really bad day, and we noticed all of this, this whole area had all these signs for Chisha, and people... You know, the tisha is like, it means literally strange stones or weird stones. And this is sort of a, a, a Chinese tradition where you have rock formations or things that look like other things and they have maybe a shape. And, and, and sometimes you have a rock that has a, a mineral pattern that resembles like an old lady's face or something and, and those solid people collect them. And we couldn't figure out why this area had all these tisha. You know, it's, it was a highway going through, but, you know, what could possibly the market be in this bad part of Hubei? Um, and so we pulled over and just out of curiosity just to stop in the shop and we walked walked into the shop and I walked in first and I was giving this guy a ride just for you know for for a day. He was also American and uh, he walked through behind me and there was just this incredible crash and you know something had fallen on the ground and shattered and the shop owner said, Oh, you know, you your coat brushed it and and my, I, my friend was very shocked, and of course I was shocked. And I, you know, I said, "Did that happen?" He said, "Yeah, I, I, I guess." And the shop owner said, "Don't, don't worry about it. They went deep. They went. Don't worry about it." He's like, "You know, um, maybe you want to buy something else instead." <laughs> and you know, we we're trying to process this, and you just you've just been driving, and you're suddenly confronted with all these strange stones in front of you that you know, and and then people start to kind of come in from the outside of the shop. It's, they're Pretty soon, there's like five or six guys standing by the door. Um, some, some 
not exactly intimidatingly, but somewhat, you know, and, and we're trying to, you know, finally asked the guy, how much is that stone there? Just pick one random, and it was like 2,000 quad, huge amount of money. And that was the only time on the journey that I really felt pretty nervous and pretty worried. Um, but it turned out we gave the guy a 50 quad bill, and they let us walk out of the strange stone stop, shop, and that was it. But So that was the roadside scam. But other than that, Every, I mean, it was people were incredibly friendly, incredibly generous, um, and I never really felt like I was. It was much of a risk in terms of being robbed, and, and the camping was great. I mean, I was traveling in, you know, across the Los Plateau and across the deserts and the Gobi and the Tengger Desert, Desert and, and Gansu and Qinghai, and you know, most of these places are so empty, um, and you can just kind of choose wherever you want to camp. Beautiful campsites. Um, and basically nobody around a lot of these areas. So I, I felt quite safe with that. The thing that I didn't feel that safe about, I guess, was the driving itself. I mean, that's the biggest risk. And, you know, um, I guess the year I got my license, China had 20% of the vehicles of the U.S., but 200% of the accidents. You know, yeah. Not the accidents, I'm sorry, the fatalities. Yeah, because actually the accidents were 750,000 accidents that year. Um, you know, and you see this along the road. I mean, you would see, I'd see signs that would say, along this highway, 58 people have died. You know, and it's, they have the numbers that they can change quickly. You know, it's kind of like, it's like Fenway Park, you know, where they've got, like, they have like a, a scoreboard. And, and, and then you'd also, you'd also see these big, these huge, uh, um, proper, basically road safety propaganda displays and sometimes they had a car and a big pillar. They had one car and it was painted with drops of blood all over it. And then there's a big sign that says Cherish Life Drive Safely. <laughs> and then there was another one I remember in Qinghai. I think the best one I ever saw was it was a completely demolished vehicle that had uh, I mean just absolutely wrecked the point where you could barely see it was a car. It was up on stilts fifteen feet above the road. And then they painted on the side of it four people died. <laughs> Um, and you're driving, I and mean, this is sort of reached the point where road propaganda, road safety propaganda becomes such a distraction that, that you're not sure, maybe it's too effective because you're driving along and you sort of see this thing and you know, you're looking and, and following it. But that was my only real concern, so I didn't drive at night. If it started raining, I just often just took the day off. Um, you know, and I think my parents, who have never been to China, and my mother's never been there, she didn't ever grasp how dangerous this is. And so my parents would always they'd get very worried about things like SARS, for example, but they never they never sort of worried about me driving. And I wasn't going to tell them that you know this is really this is really what you should be nervous about. Tell us about your uh, you're a journalist and you required approval to go all to all these pe these places and you I guess never or rarely had the approval. So tell us about some of your run-ins with uh, Guhan Buman and how you kind of um, avoided that. Right. I mean, this is you know in China there were of course lots of rules and people sometimes follow them, sometimes you don't. And I mean the rental, for example, I just rented the car, I rented a Jeep Cherokee, because I could just see that if I bought a car in China, every dent was going to hurt, at least for a certain period of time, and I realized that renting was much better. Um, and I rented from this company in Beijing that was just a great, classic, old-school, state-owned state -owned company, 
And and I quickly realized that these guys, they didn't really care whatever I did with one of their vehicles. I mean, the, you know, you, you could tell from the gas refill policy, you'd pick up the thing and they would say, they'd look at it and they'd say, okay, you've got a quarter of a tank of gas. You need to bring it back with a quarter of a tank. And the next time it would be three quarters of a tank. And then it might be three eighths. So there's never any system to that, you know. And they're, you know, just, just, just sort of fly by night. And they, they had a, they had a rule that if you rented a car there, you're not allowed to take it outside of Beijing. Um, which I decided that I, that rule was, going, was optional, basically. I guess. <laughs> and I figured that I would take my trip, and then you know maybe they wouldn't know. And so I brought back the car after the first journey with like 3,500 miles on it, and and the guy checked the odometer, and I, I just I think wasn't sure how they were going to handle this, and and he said. Um, you know, you added, I forget how many kilometers it was, like 5,000 kilometers. He said, where, where did you go? And I couldn't just lie to him and say that I had been driving around the second ring road. You know, <laughs> I felt sort of bad. And I said, well, you know, I went to, uh, you know, I went to Sobei, and I went to Shanxi, and I went to Shanxi, and I went to Inner Mongolia. And, you know, and, and, and he's like, why? Wow. He said, all those places. I said, yeah. He's like, all by yourself. I said, yeah. And he's like, did you, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't really understand. Uh, <laughs> and then he, and, and he said, did you stay on paved roads? And I said, well, whenever I could. <laughs> and they were really happy about it. He called everybody else in the office and said, he's like, you went all the way to Inner Mongolia for so I realized after that, okay, that rule is no longer applicable to me. You sort of, this is how things work in China. You know, you, there are a lot of rules, and you figure out where the envelope is, and, and you push it. And people, Chinese people are masters of doing this. They know how it works, you know. And so it's just part of the system. And and there is a rule for journalists that you're not supposed to go anywhere without applying. And you usually ignore this rule. But it's also the problem with journalists is that if you – stay in a hotel in China, they have a rule that you're supposed to register. And it, as a journalist, in your passport, it says you're a journalist on your visa. And so that had a lot to do with me camping in the sense that if I camped, um, then I didn't have to register. So that was often what I would, the way I skirted that. You go into a small town as a journalist and somebody's going to, you know, possibly check on what you're doing and, and maybe ask you to leave. So I, I'd camp, and which meant that I would sort of got smellier and smellier before I drove, and uh, I would stop in the, I'd stop at the barber shops and have people wash my hair, because you can do that for 10, for like 10 quai, you get a hair wash and a massage, and so that was sort of my shower on the road. Um, but, you know, it was amazing how easy it was in a way to, to drive um, without sort of registering, and one of the reasons is there's no cops. I mean, there's really no police on the road mm-hmm. anywhere in China. That's one the cover of the book is, you know, a, a Chinese cop, which is a statue, you know. <laughs> that was something they had erected all over Inner Mongolia, these statues of policemen, which were supposed to, <laughs> somehow supposed to inspire people to drive better. And, you know, I uh, I always kid, I have two, two of my sisters are married to cops, one in Missouri and one in Minnesota, and I always kid that they're going to get replaced, you know, I have a Chinese outsourcing, they're going to make these. <laughs> The second part of the book is, is about village life and this, this village outside of Beijing where you have this home and you develop this very deep relationship with the Wei family. One of, as I finish that part of the book, I, you know, I think it, it ends in about 2007. Mm-hmm. 
I wondered what happened to them subsequent to mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. he had this great run. You know, he started his business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, number one, what happened? And then number two, he has this. He joins the Chinese Communist Party to get ahead, like a number of not any any ideological belief, mm-hmm. because he believed it was good for his business. Then there's this period where he thinks he may become party secretary of the little village. So my, my second part of the question is, did you ever think he was going to win that election? That is a good question. Um, I started going to this village outside of Beijing in 2001. You know, really, it was, it was basically a personal decision. I've been in Beijing for a couple of years. And sort of after the Peace Corps, I was just, I found it hard to, to get sort of a personal foothold in the city in the sense of feeling very connected. It's so big and it's so different from when you're teaching in a small town in Sichuan. And I kind of, I missed the countryside um, and I missed sort of having a place that I felt that I knew very well and, and that I sort of, you know, could, could talk to all the people that live there where I used to in Fuling. And so I, with a friend, I started renting this house, house north of Beijing and my my driver's license allowed me to do that because I could go out there on the weekends. And, and you know, so it really was, was a personal decision and something that, that I thought would, would sort of improve my quality of life. And it, it turned out to, to be a lot more, partly because I became very close to my neighbors. And one of the things that happened very early on was their son became, became ill. Um, and I, I was involved in trying to help them get medical care. It was very intense um, series of events where, where we had to work together very closely to try to get him medical care in Beijing. And, and over the course of that, we became very close. And so it's sort of, it's different from the other sections of the book, really. And I think as a journalist, you meet people in different ways. Um, and that second section, as I, I write about it and how we met and, and this incident with the boy's illness, it, it, it's a different relationship than, I, than, say, the third section where I was really strictly a journalist. Um, but I ended up staying there for many years. I still have a house there. And, and this family, the, the, the man, his name was Wei Zichi. I mean, he sort of, he, he responded very quickly once the auto boom happened in Beijing and people started coming out there. He opened up a restaurant and then a guest house and he started to do business. And it was really fascinating how quickly he changed. I mean, he had never been a smoker. He began to smoke because that's what you do when you do business in China. He started to dress very, he became very aware of the way he dressed. He knew that if he went to the city to get supplies or to meet people, that he had to wear better shoes than he would wear in the village. He got it, you know, he, he bought blue jeans that he could wear when he's in the city. So you would see these very physical transformations, and he also joined the Communist Party. And as you mentioned, he eventually sort of tried to become party secretary. Um, there was almost a power, basically a power struggle in, in the village. Um, and it was, it was really fascinating to see because I think in a lot of ways when we hear about disturbances in China, these tend to be a big event happens in, in some place and it makes the news and then the journalists go in and record what, what happened to, to build to this point. Um, and, you know, and this is very common in China, but in a way it's also interesting to go to a place where there aren't problems and then see what kind of problems start to develop and how they are resolved or if they are resolved. And in this case, I think this is what happens in many, many places in China now, and sort of that the place started to become more prosperous, people's lives changed, they had new challenges, their, their framework completely shifted, um, and they started to push against the local party structure, and they started to think about having new leaders and making changes, and you know, some sort of 
don't know if you'd call it democratic change, but some element of that in terms of people's opinions were changing. Um, and the way that it got resolved was, you know, basically dependent on people's guanxi in the village. It's incredible negotiating. Um, and the guy that I was friends with ended up losing out in that struggle. But when he lost out, I mean, he accepted it. And his lesson from that was, I don't want to get involved in politics anymore. I'm going to focus on my business. And I think, in a way, I suspect this is the way, this is something, something that happens in many villages and many townships and many cities all over China. And I think this is one of the reasons why we haven't seen sort of huge political change. People might, might push a little bit and then they quickly realize that it's not in their interest at this point. And, and in his case, it didn't cost him much. He lost face, basically. You know, he didn't, his business wasn't taken from him. He certainly wasn't thrown in jail or treated badly. And he's still there. And the people that he was sort of opposed to are still in charge in the village. Um, they actually just had another election. I, I talk with them on the phone every couple of weeks, actually. And, uh, and you know, he didn't run this, this, this last election. He told me he has no interest in doing it again. Um, unless the, the party secretary tells him to do it, he says. So that was what he took away from that. So, in, you know, sort of an answer of what happened to the people, he's, you know, he learned to focus on his business. Again, I think a lesson that many people in China take away. Um, and I do, you know, I, I keep in touch with, with the folks there a lot. I talk with them on the phone. They, I call them and they, they call me. The, the boy who I write about in the book is now about a seventh grader and he calls periodically, often at six in the morning on Sunday. Um, I always, always say, wait, Dad, do you know what time it is here? And he's like, yeah, it's six in the morning. I mean, he knows exactly what time it is. It's not, it's not a matter of, there's no confusion, but he just thinks I should be awake at six in the morning on Sunday. I, you know, I generally am, actually. My wife is not, so it's less, less uh, she doesn't like to hear the phone ring. Either. But I, I still hear from them a lot, and I'll, I'll see them, I guess, next month because I'm going back to China for a trip. There's a great microcosm of um, the village election system, mm -hmm. but the interference by the, you know, the, 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 the township was interesting, that the township did not really want mm -hmm. uh, a change. And I assume the current party secretary remained in office in this most recent election. So it really is interesting that the intra-party democracy that's talked about so much in theory, this is really a great example of Mm -hmm. how it's there in a fledgling way, mm -hmm. but not yeah. in, a, in a way that we kind of uh, think about. Um, now, I'm going to open the floor to people. The folks in the audience have questions. I've got dozens of questions. Happy to continue, but we can also open the floor to, to some questions before I go back to mine. Can't yeah, see who's in the back. I'm just curious, when you're talking about the, uh, being a reporter in China, I work for the South China Morning Post in Beijing, and I always assume that my house was but I actually never ran into any overt um, monitoring or people coming in from maybe just the post position in China. Do you ever feel that, or basically you, you with the authorities or somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's such a, it's a big issue, and it's something people think about a lot, obviously. I think there are, I think if you work for the New York Times or Washington Post, I think they monitor them very closely because their interests tend to be very political. There have been periods when I could tell I was being monitored. I mean, there was, in particular, right before Rivertown was published, and I was doing some archaeological stories for National Geographic, and I had a very weird series of events. I went back to Fuling to visit friends and to attend a former student's wedding. 
And after the wedding, I went to a stopped at another. There was a kid I wrote about in Rivertown named Mo Money. He gave himself that name, Mo Money. I went to his school to to give a lecture, and Mo Money had arranged everything. And I was there, stood up in front of all these kids at this school, and the police came immediately and walked me out. And you know, just a sort of incredible seeing all these kids waiting here, and then they escort the guy out. You know, the cops come and. Really shocking to me. I'd never had anything like that happen. Um, and I had just been accredited as a journalist. I was just starting to write for The New Yorker as well. Um, and then I went back to Beijing. I, I canceled the rest of that trip. And uh, But over the next week, everybody I had seen was interrogated. Mo Money was interrogated. The woman whose wedding I had been to, the wedding guests. I mean, it was really awful. And and it really was shocking to me because I wasn't doing any research. I was just visiting friends. And it sort of, uh, so I ended up setting up a meeting with, with a foreign minister, somebody from the foreign ministry who I knew would, was a little more open than some of the other officials and in, in Beijing. And I had this conversation and, and, uh, with, with her, and, and, and I explained what happened. I said, this is very strange. And she said, well, you know, National Geographic has been doing some research in sensitive regions. And I said, well, you know, I've been, I was, I spent a week with the Terracotta Warriors in Xi'an. I mean, I'm not sure how <laughs> sensitive that was. It was like fully approved. And I mean, they, they are statues, right? And so, it, but it just it really shocked me. But then I talked to the geographic folks and it turned out that somebody was doing a project in Tibet. And I hadn't had no idea. And, but this had moved around. So I think, Sometimes something happens that triggers it. And then I had a conversation with her, and no, this never didn't happen anymore, and the people in Sichuan were not hassled. But so I think sometimes, I think it's very unpredictable. I, I think they probably collect a lot of information, but I don't think they have much time to, to analyze it. You know? I, had another, I had another Peace Corps friend who had taught kids just like I did in Sichuan, and one of his students, his job that he got after graduation was going to Tibet and following foreigners around overhearing their conversations, you know, <laughs> which does might sound sinister and so on, but I mean, my friend who had taught this kid said that unless they were saying, you know, hello, how are you, that he wasn't going to pick up anything about you, basically. So like, I kind of, you know, and you look at America, America has monitored, you know, look at what we did with 9-11, and I mean, how hard it is to analyze information, and to, to just, it's easy to collect, hard to analyze, um, and I suspect in China that's even more dramatic. So, and for me, because I wasn't doing heavily political things, I don't think they cared that much. And so after that incident, and that was early, I think they also knew that Rivertown was coming out and they might have been trying to figure out who I was and what I was doing. Um, and I, but since then, I never got a sense that I was really being followed that closely. Um, and in the factory town where I went for two years, unbelievable, I never had any incidents. You know, and I didn't never apply. I mean, I applied for interviews over and over, and nobody ever talked to me officially, but they would never agree. But I'd show up and spend a week, and I wouldn't have any problems. So that's often, I mean, that's, one, that's why there's a, a statue of a cop really on the cover of the book, because in a way, that's how China often feels. It is an authoritarian country, and the rules are in place, but often they're not really enforced. Yeah, I... <coughs> I did a doctor dissertation in South Korea in the 70s, which is about maybe where China is now, and on highways and the way that they affected life. And after all the data, 
there's just a huge leftover impact, and it seems like the people really changed as a result of the contact that the roads brought to them. And it sounds like you talked about a shifting framework. Could you could you say a little bit more about how it, the, the actual just the contact and the back and forth capability mm -hmm. really changed uh, the whole functioning of the society? Right, right. I mean. In the village, for, for example, I mean, I mentioned how people in the village could start to do business. These had been farmers, and they farmed at a pretty low level. Their, their income immediately increased because they could, they could do business. But it, with, with people from the city, they also could sell their goods in a more competitive way because buyers could arrive and drive all the way to the village. In the past, they couldn't. So suddenly, you had more competition for their walnuts, and the price would change like every day, which had never been the case. It used to be stable throughout the season. And so they learned to, you know, to negotiate harder. They would sometimes hold, withhold their crop for a while. All of these things shifted immediately. And then there's a lot of social change, too. I mentioned Wage Chief, a man who started to do business. You know, he began to smoke. He also started to drink heavily. He became, in a way, very unhealthy because this was necessary for him if he was doing business. He had to host banquets and sort of you know, make guanxi with people. Um, and his wife responded in a totally different way in that she became very busy with, the, with what they were doing, their business. But she didn't get a lot of a face from it. She didn't get a lot of the benefits that he got. She wasn't making new friends that she could drink and smoke cigarettes with. Um, and what happened with her was some people from Beijing came and ate at the guest house, and she heard them talking about religion. And she struck up a conversation with them, and these, these people were city people who had begun to believe in Buddhism, young sort of yuppies, basically but they were interested in Buddhism. And they came back out and they brought her books on Buddhism. And she became Buddhist. She set up a shrine in their home. These people had been totally unreligious when I, when I first met them. And she became quite religious. And it became a sort of a source of tension between them because she didn't like to kill the animals, the fish that they served to the guests, or the chickens or anything else. And so she would have him accumulate all the bad karma <laughs> and slaughter the animals. So there are, I think, whenever you see these sort of changes, you know, a road seems like a simple thing, and we know at a logical level that, yeah, having a new road replaced leads to change, but when you see it, it's really striking, because there is this very deep emotional change as well, and in some, in some cases even spiritual. I should say that was Albert Pidel of the Atlantic Council. I just please identify yourself when you ask your question, if you would. Did you happen to be? Some way. I teach at the Columbia. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your, your books. And uh, I suppose that the two of the articles already published in, in New, York, New York, right? Um, so I, my question is that, uh, you know, has any of your books been translated into Chinese? Okay, fair. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, the question is, have, have any of these books been translated into Chinese? I did do two stories on the village, which you mentioned for the New Yorker, and those were translated into Chinese, and the, the, you know, the family that I wrote about read those. And um, My books have been translated in Taiwan, um, but they have, and I've been offered contracts in the mainland, but they would have to change things. Basically, and nothing major, but just small things. Like, because in Rivertown, maybe I mentioned the Tiananmen Square massacre, and they would have to take that out. And so, I've never been comfortable with doing that. With I don't, I just don't feel good as a writer about signing a contract and taking money for something that's going to be politically changed in some way. So I haven't signed those. I feel bad though because I would like people in the towns and in these places to read it. it, it it's a hard issue for me, and I've had. 
when I talked to people about this, I got very different responses. And most of my Chinese friends would tell me you should do it. Um, you know, but I feel like that's a decision that Chinese people often have to make. Um, but as a writer, I don't know, it's, it's just a little different for me. I, I just don't feel comfortable with it. And I think I also get a lot of emails from people who write and say, I'm translating your book, and I might post, I might post it online. What do you think about that? <laughs> you know? And I always tell them, I say, fine. You know, and that tweet's out there, and I'm fine with that, basically. And I've, I've told some people very, very, basically, very specifically, fine. I like to have it out there, and I don't care. It's nice of you to write me and tell me that you're pirating. I mean, they're not, and they're not trying, they're not trying to profit. You know, they just have an interest in it. Um, but I just don't feel comfortable about having an official contract and an official publication with sort of my stamp of approval that has been politically changed. So. Someday I hope that, it, that, it, that you know that it'll happen, and, and, the, and the Taiwanese editions are you know are good, and sometimes those float around to mainland as well. I, I bring copies when I go back to these places. It's kind of like the Google issue, mm. the Google.cn issue. Are you better off having Google in China, subject to some mm. what every, even Google says is a very small percentage mm. of censorship, mm. or not be there at all? Initially, they said, you know, we're willing to accept that censorship, and now they've decided that that is not it. In the, in the third book, is there anything that they would want to take out? It seems much less. It is, I didn't. Nothing jumped out at me as saying there would be a lot of little things, basically. You know, and I don't know if they, if the whole thing in the village, the sort of power struggle, which in a way is, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not one of these cases where somebody was beaten to death or something, and and you know, it's not that dramatic. But it is a case of the party behaving basically in an undemocratic fashion because the, the officials come in from the township and make sure that people vote a certain way. So there might be things like that that would be changed, but it couldn't be translated directly. And every time a publisher approaches me, I say, if you can promise me that you translate it directly, I will sign the contract. But they have never been able to make that promise. So that's still where we are. Uh, okay, Rika Taylor out of the gallery, Chelsea. Um, uh, I wonder, besides the advent of the car, hasn't the uh, cell phone and the internet changed? Mm -hmm. uh, the question is if, uh, in addition to the car, is that the, the cell phone and the internet changed um, China, and, and, and certainly. And that was another big moment for this village was when the cell phone tower was built and people started to get cell phones. Um, and, you know, I guess it's not as much my focus in this book. My wife's book, Factory Girl, she writes a lot about the role that the cell phone plays with young, the young women in the factories. It's incredibly important to them. I mean, basically, that's, that's how their entire network is organized. And the fact that that's become affordable um, and she makes, makes the, you know, gives them, they find out about jobs from each other um, and, and, you know, allows them to build networks. So I, I think that's a huge impact. In some ways, among people like that, like villagers and migrant workers, the cell phone at this point is much more important than the internet. When I was in the factory town, the factory workers I met, they weren't spending much time online, very little. Um, you know, basically an issue of their working conditions and they don't want to spend money on the, on the wampa, on the, on the internet cafes, um, and they just didn't have that much time for it. I think, I think internet is very important for middle class and, and upper class and educated people. It's having a huge impact on them. In this book, I'm really focusing a lot on people from the country who are making this transition from countryside to city. Um, and for them, the phone is really this, is, you know, is a central element there. 
just over the years uh, you've been looking at it, any comments on some of the things that outsiders think about kind of the friction between rural and urban uh, potential for savings rates going down, um, some of those kinds of issues uh, based on your experience in the rural side that most of us don't see. They have a friction between urban and rural, and, and I mean, it, it's, it is the divide in China, basically, is rural and urban. I mean, there are two different worlds, no question. Um, and that's a, and a lot of what I'm writing about is these two worlds and people moving between them. I think the thing to realize is that there is no real divide between them in the sense of people moving. There was an incredible transition between these, and people are, somebody from the countryside can move quite easily to the cities at this point, and that's the, that's what we're seeing. And I think in the end, that's what keeps a lot of tension from building. You know, I mean, I think in villages that, you know, the system in villages is not a good system, particularly the land use system. And, and then when you have political frictions like the kind I described here, they're not resolved in, in positive ways, you know, or fair ways. But there are a lot of pressure valves. And I think basically if the people in the village that are highly motivated and highly talented, most of those people leave when they're young nowadays. And in some ways that takes out some of the population that would be likely to cause trouble. In this village where I spent a lot of time, Wade Chi, the man I write about, he's one of the rare ones who stayed, who's really quite, very bright, who's very intelligent, very motivated, very organized, very skilled. He was potentially a problem, basically. And he did cause some problems. But he was eventually, you know, he was very quickly sort of subsumed into the party structure. He became a party member. He basically became, at some level, part of the system. So I think you see a lot of that as well. It's another type of party, uh, another type of, of pressure valve. So I feel like a lot of these tensions at this particular moment, there are ways for them to be sort of siphoned off um, so that they don't create huge problems. And it's, it has a lot to do with this incredible mobility and incredible movement that's happening all across China. Um, sorry. I'm wondering what you'll be working on next. <laughs> the, the question is what I'm working on next. I'm, I'm doing some, uh, some magazine projects in the state. I live in southwestern Colorado, and I'm, I'm writing. Right now I'm spending a lot of time in towns that mine uranium in southwestern Colorado, which is a world apart from what I've done. But there's lots of links in a way. I mean, it reminds me of going to small places in China in, in some sense. So I felt like as a writer... You know, after finishing this project, I felt like I was sort of closing a chapter, and, and I felt happy with the way the three the three books fit together. Um, and but I felt like I I wanted to write about different subjects, basically as a writer, to make sure I'm continuing to learn and and to have new challenges. I think the plan is my my wife Leslie and I would we would like to move overseas again and study another language for a while and then uh, go back to China eventually. I'm sure we will. But I, I think we'd like to do something different for a few years. Um, and we're thinking about moving to the Middle East and studying Arabic and, and writing about some place that's totally different from China. You know, I want, And I think that's part of the goal. And it's one of the reasons we moved to a very small town in Colorado. We wanted sort of a shift. Um, I think as a writer, it's very, very healthy. Um, and we know that China will be there and, and that we'll be happy to live there at some point in the future. What do you, um, I know what we miss most. We'll miss most having a, a reporter in Beijing who gets outside of Beijing and, you know, delves deeply into what's going on. Um, what do you miss most about China? I mean, in a way, 
you know, both Leslie and I were surprised that we were very happy moving back. And it, it, partly because, I mean, we moved to a place with 700 people and there's one stoplight in the county. It couldn't have been more different. And we're on top of a mesa. And I mean, I've seen, I go for runs and I've seen mountain lions twice, you know. And it's, it's just a different world. And we sort of liked having that complete shift. And we found that, in a way, it, you know, we weren't terribly homesick for China. We weren't, you know, we certainly never felt like we've got to get out of this place and sick of China. Never, never reached that point. I guess the goal has always been to be happy where you are and to find things there that engage you and interest you. Um, I mean, the things I really appreciated about China all the way through was certainly the sense of energy there. I mean, the sense of a place. And that's really what attracted me. I had no interest in China growing up, never studied it in college, never thought about it, and happened to pass through on a trip in 1994 where I went to, like, 20 some odd countries and the moment I arrived in Beijing I could just sense that something was happening. I mean there was really a tangible energy on the street and and that throughout the time I was in China was the thing that, that, that I always connected with the most this you know this sense of, of people trying to change their life and being motivated. So I always appreciated that. I, I admired the resourcefulness of the people. I mean it was, I, I you know felt like I had a very deep respect for them. I also liked I like the humor of China. I mean, I found it to be, a, you know, a, a, a funny place. People there had a good sense of humor. Um, as a writer, that was important to me to try to capture that as well. So, you know, I guess those are some of the things. By the way, the, the, there are all these, you have all these quotes. Throughout the book, there are these quotes from the uh, driver's text, mm -hmm. the driver's license text, which are, they're very, very funny. They're, they're all verbatim from the driver's license. Yeah, they're from the Chinese. They almost seem they, they almost seem like they're they're made up. I mean, it's very very funny. Yeah, now that's also that's often true in China that you can't you really can't make up better stuff than. <laughs> I mean, I, let me see if I can find one of these. I mean, you, you know, I uh, I started as a fiction writer. That was my interest in uh, in college, and I ended up by the end of college, I was taking some nonfiction courses and and. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of gravitated nonfiction, but it was also true that in China, you know, you really didn't need to make anything up. And it was like so much good to share. This is one of the questions. This is from the, 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 the Chinese exam. If another motorist stops you to ask directions, you should, A, not tell him. <laughs> B, reply patiently and accurately. C, tell him the wrong way. There's another question that there's another question that says, when passing another driver you should A, pass on the left, B, pass on the right, C, pass wherever possible. <laughs> All three of those are correct, you know. And, uh, but you know so the, the humor was important to me and I know you know, I felt like it has to be in balance. Um, and I wouldn't want to write a book that's just a comedy routine, but it's part of the fullness of life. And I feel like you want to write about the serious issues, but you also want to have these moments of lightness. I feel like, I guess that was always one of my drives with, with traditional journalism. I felt like it makes China seem very serious often, I mean, really sort of somber and heavy. And it just didn't feel, I, you know, the Chinese people weren't like that. And they had a very good sense of humor. Um, a lot of it is voice. You know, if you write for a newspaper, you can't use the first person voice because of the way journalism has these structures. So it's, and journalists themselves have a great sense of humor. You talk to them, and they're very funny. They tell engaging stories, but it can't come out on the page because their editors won't let them use the, some of the tools you need. And first person is really critical to humor. 
you know, if you, if you think about it, as a writer, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, it really depends on that. And if you, you take away that tool and you lose a lot, you know. And so one of the reasons why I sort of gravitated away from traditional journalism, I came to China as a writer, my interests were always there, and I wanted to be able to use everything that I could as a writer, and I felt like there's too many of those things that were, you know, sort of taken away. Over here, then. Um, my name is Caroline Bliss, and I just, I've lived in China for a year and a half, so I guess my question is very broad, but I feel like a lot of times when I was living there, I would meet other foreigners, and they were always kind of getting surprised by a lot of things that I would almost sort of forget about, because I was just getting used to them, and you just seem like you have such a rich body of knowledge about so many aspects of China. I guess I'm wondering, right now, in this day and age, especially after you've written this book. Now, what is it today that kind of surprises you about China? I mean, I guess you're continually surprised by people's ability to adjust and to reinvent themselves. I mean, just the ways in which they can do I guess it comes down to resourcefulness. Um, I think as far as the general trajectory, I never felt that, that surprised in the sense of, by the time I finished in fooling, I kind of had a sense of the way the place was developing and how people were responding. And I never felt like, oh, this is going to blow up and collapse in two years or something. I never kind of had that feeling. Um, but I think the thing that just continually impresses you is this flexibility and resourcefulness and, and also the speed. I mean, basically the, the pace at which things happen. I mean, in this book I described in the factory town in particular how fast things get built, how fast decisions are made. I mean, people are incredibly mobile in their thinking, you know, and they, and, and they don't, they don't worry. I mean, they're, they're big, they're capable of taking big risks, and part of it has something to do with not having that much to lose, you know, and I'm in America, I noticed that Americans have a comfortable life, um, and, you know, it's harder to sort of invest your life savings in a factory that's going to make these little rings that connect to brazier straps, you know, because, <laughs> for obvious reasons, right, and, and I think also Americans, I think, they're more traumatized by it. Like the financial crisis, uh, you know, it seems like it weighed very heavily on Americans. Whereas when that happened in China, I was talking to people in the factory town. They were fine. They're like, I'll go back to, I get fired, you know, I'll go back to the village and play Mahjong, you know. And I mean, literally, that's what people, and you read all of these stories immediately, that like, you know, unrest, workers, and I just knew that wasn't happening. And none of those stories were the reporters spending much time in the, vill in the villages or in the factory towns. It's just, and it didn't happen, and people have gone right back, and that didn't surprise me, you know. It impresses me, I, you know, in, in a way, I mean, I find it an amazing ability, um, but I, I think that's that's the thing that always jumps out at me there. Tom, one last question. Yeah, I'm Tom Gouray, former J&J executive, spent a lot of time in China, and visiting, actually, not only big towns, but a lot of small towns, one similar to the one you described. One of the things that I found there in talking to the, the people was that they had major concerns, and the concerns were really simple, and they're sort of like global concerns. I wonder if you have the same thing. Health, health care, uh, education, and, and wanting to make sure that their children spoke English so that they could compete and, and, and survive in the world. And I wonder if you found that kind of simple. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you get to know somebody in China, I think it's, it's not hard to understand the motivations for this generation. I mean, one of the reasons that people, it's a very hard place to understand. In some ways, it's not. You know, I mean, it's hard. The language is hard. There's all these other elements. But when you get down to it, I always feel like I could connect with people because, it, you know, it's understandable. Motivations. And, they're, and they're, they're so pragmatic. You know, they respond to things. 
they don't respond in a really emotional way often. They respond in a very logical way. Um, and, and those are big concerns. Healthcare is a huge one, and I write about that with the village. It's one of the reasons why that incident with the child becoming ill was very intense. And you realize villages, they, they, they don't have health care in rural China. There's no national health care. So like in the village, there's a tradition that when, a, when somebody gets sick, the people in the village all contribute some money. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a formalized insurance system, but it is a type of insurance you know, that has developed there. And so it weighs, you know, it's something they're very aware of. And this is, this is certainly, you know, one of their big concerns. I, I guess the other thing I notice in China is that the concerns tend to be pretty localized and pretty personal. So you don't hear people saying, you know, our land use laws really aren't fair. We should change the constitution, which would be 100% true. You know, if you're in a if you're in a village, in this village, a lot of the problems come down to that issue. Um, but the locals wouldn't say that. It's, it's just so far beyond the scope of what they can affect. You know, and so the interest and the energy tends to be focused much more on personal and, and, and localized issues. Lorette, one of my questions related to the changes that are upcoming in the land use regulations that mm-hmm. they're now they're, they're providing certain protections mm-hmm. for people that. We're out of time. We can talk about that after. But first, let me thank the Idlewild Bookstore for providing us this lovely venue for this morning's program. It's much appreciated. And let me thank Peter for what was a wonderfully illuminating and enlightening discussion this morning. He's